Salt City Milking Stool, Olmstead and Jones Improved Milking Stool and Pail Holder, patented January 3, 1871. All persons infringing on this patent will be prosecuted. The benefits claimed for this improved stool and pail holder are, first, the pail can be raised or lowered at will, and the clasp adjusted to fit any size tin or wood pail. Second, the pail can be held nearer the bag of the cow so that the milk will not be lost by spraying, as is frequently the case when the pail rests on the ground. Third, it keeps the pail from being soiled on the bottom with barnyard filth and obviates the necessity of holding the pail between the knees or feet. Fourth, with this pail holder, it is important possible for the milk to be spilled by the cow starting or kicking while being milked. We manufactured the stools and can supply any quantity wanted promptly. This is the cheapest and simplest milking stool and pail holder in the world. No false seat and no coil springs to get out of order, but merely a stool, band, and lever. We sell the stools. Town, county, or state rights. Parties wishing to purchase rights will be liberally dealt with. Address, Olmstead and Jones, Syracuse, New York. I believe the air with the greatest of ease, a daring young man on the side. Hi there. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you're listening to Historic Headlines, the podcast where we gain historical insight by examining newspaper articles from 50, 100, and 150 years ago this week. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Well, hi, folks. Did you notice something different about that intro? A lot of pauses. A couple of false starts. That's because the perfect is the enemy of the good. If this is your first time joining me, you may not realize this, but I haven't put out a podcast episode since the spring of 2019. I have a toddler... That's only part of it. That's really only an excuse. I've known since long before she was born that the primary obstacle between me and having a good podcast is my trying to make it perfect. If you look back on most of those episodes, they were quite polished. I'll go so far as to say that they were much better in terms of audio quality at least and certainly in terms of research, than the vast majority of podcasts out there. 
That's because I spent about 20 hours of production for every hour of finished show. And guess what? That's not sustainable. And it wasn't. So I stopped. And I get no time in front of the microphone, being a stay-at-home parent, and I let the podcast languish. But for various reasons, I was looking in on what was happening in Syracuse 150 years ago today, March 10th, 1871, and I desperately want to share this. This is important stuff. So I'm going back to the statement, the perfect is the enemy of the good, which has been echoing in my head for years. And here's the thing, folks. This podcast has at times been excellent within very narrow restraints. I don't claim to be funny. I don't claim to be particularly smart. But again, it was well-researched. And from an audio perspective, it was polished. But it's never been a good podcast because it's not from the heart, it's not off the cuff, it's just, it's just too edited. And in order for this podcast to ever be good, I've always known it's going to have to suck. So, this is me doing a podcast episode which is going to suck. I hope you bear with me. I don't know if it's going to take me Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours for it to be good. I hope it doesn't, but it's going to have to suck before it can be good. So, here we go. The Syracuse Daily Journal, Syracuse, Friday evening, March 10th, 1871. Let's jump right into some national news. Anarchy in Kentucky. Kentucky deserves to be mentioned in the same category with North Carolina and South Carolina in point of insurrectionary movements and opposition to the provisions of the Constitution as amended since the rebellion closed. That state is an unmitigated disgrace to the Union. Worse than that, it is a positive danger. Had Kentucky been made the threshing floor of the rebellion, as was the state of Virginia, it would not now be the scene of refractory and treasonable acts, such as have struck horror into the minds of order-loving citizens. The Southern Democrats and some of their Northern confrères are urgently beseeching that Congress shall remove all political disabilities, and there are Republicans who, in the generosity of their hearts, have advocated general amnesty, but while their plea is still fresh in the public mind, accounts of insurrections and wholesale murders in Kentucky and elsewhere prove that the time has not yet come for the restoration of a certain class of rebels to political rights and consequent power. A little more than a month ago, the colored mail agent on the Louisville, Frankfurt, and Lexington Railroad was attacked by a body of armed marauders. The consequence was the United States mail agent was obliged 
to call upon the federal authorities to protect the males on that route, and for several days a bodyguard of United States troops accompanied the agent. At last, the Ku Klux made such strong threats that they would clean out the agent and the soldiers, the postmaster general ordered that the mail should be discontinued on that route until further orders to the contrary should be given. The postmaster general has taken the right course to bring the state authorities to some kind of action which will repress disorders of this kind, if of no other. The discontinuance of the mail route on the Louisville, Frankfort, and Lexington Railroad will greatly discommode the people of Kentucky, and they will possibly bring a sufficiently strong pressure to bear upon the legislature to, inter to induce that body to pass measures that will enforce order and safety. The Louisville Courier-Journal, a Democratic newspaper, frankly says, but while we are sorry to see the United States government discommoding the innocent multitude in a vain effort to punish the guilty few, we are not at all disposed to relieve our own state government from a share in the responsibility for this state of things. Gibson, the same colored mail agent who has been driven from the Lexington route, served for months on the Lebanon route, and... Though that route lay through Democratic counties, there was not the slightest symptom of disorderly or unseemly opposition to the appearance of a Negro as male agent. That such opposition has shown itself with impunity on the Lexington route, and that the legislature has made no serious attempt to render such acts as the North Benson Raid dangerous to the perpetrators is certainly to be deplored, but there is room to hope that the evil will finally work out its own remedy. Their success against the United States government and the encouragement they derive from the non-action of the state legislature will at last encourage these gallows birds to add to their lowly victims some prominent citizen whose murder will arouse the whole state to vengeance. They have already made threats against some of the best men in the, in the legislature, and unless that body awakes to its duty, there will soon be a startling culmination to those outrages. Nor is this instance which we have given either the worst or the only one in Kentucky, Judge prior of that state, in referring to the dangerous secret organization in Kentucky, said that Negroes had been shot down in his own district by armed men in disguise, that white men had been lacerated with the lash under the judgment of sacred, of secret courts, a deed as dark as the covering that hides their faces from the victim's view, and that judgment is pronounced at the silent hour of night by a judge whose judgment is either executed by a rope around the neck or a lash upon the back. Judge Pryor spoke the truth when he said that public sentiment, with the aid of the legislature and the courts, alone can check this awful state of society. There is the difficulty. Kentucky has not a public sentiment, a legislature, nor a judiciary of the stamp which is needed, nor will that state have them until nor will that state have them until a public sentiment is forced into being by such a condition of anarchy as will compel the better class of citizens to arise in self-defense. Brass Foundry just started at 276 Lodi Street.
in the third ward. I am prepared to do everything in my line, including harness and saddlery hardware, with promptness and will deliver work in any part of the city. Work done at reasonable rates and warranted. Orders are solicited. John Sank and Brother. All right, folks, so you see what I mean there? There were some pauses and false starts in that last article, but again, perfect enemy, yada, yada, yada. Anyway, I wanted to mention that article at least just because 1871 was halfway through the tragedy of Reconstruction. And here we have a Syracuse newspaper reprinting articles about Reconstruction efforts more or less failing in Kentucky. And they're right in the middle of that struggle, and it's always tragic to look back on this little bubble of concerted federal effort to do the right thing and knowing where it would end up. <sighs> this is a hard one, folks. <sighs> Speaking of knowing where it would end up, there's another one that I wanted to share. This is a snippet of the notes from the previous day's congressional proceedings. Forty-second Congress, Senate, March 9th, 1871. Mr. Sumner introduced his old bill to secure equal rights to colored people in public conveyances, etc. Eighteen seventy-one. Sumner, in case you don't recognize that name, one of the most important voices in abolition at that time, tried to secure equal rights to colored people in public conveyances. This is the kind of thing that breaks my heart, and it's why I do this, because these newspapers scream the question. Why? Why, for the following 100 years, did this country hit the pause button on civil rights? In the case of Reconstruction, the answer was pretty obvious, at least insofar as that uh, the button, <laughs> the, the rewind button got hit before the pause button. Uh, there was this peak around the late 1860s, early 1870s, where black people in the South had more civil rights than they were to have for the following century. And... The easy answer is to say, well, people got bored. People got sick 
of putting all of that effort and money and energy into maintaining order in the South through federal troops, through laws, through all the, all the struggle. And the guerrilla war that the South was still waging through the Ku Klux Klan and various other means, it worked. Six years later, they would tie it all up with a bow. Federal troops moved out, uh, and uh, Jim Crow would begin. Lots of statues would be erected in the coming decades, peaking around 1911. And decades of nostalgia for the Old South would settle in like a comfortable robe on the country. Not just the South. That's, uh, that's something for a, uh, for a future episode, but let me tell you, there's a lot of obscene articles about corn shucking and nostalgia for it. The corn shucking in the old slavery days when, uh, when, the, when the Negroes were happy. That was all in the future. <sighs> when a typesetter put everything I'm reading to paper, halfway through Reconstruction, halfway through <sighs> that tragedy, On to the next article. Now this one, it's going to be more boring, but please stick with me because this is actually the main reason I wanted to share the contents of this newspaper today. Because it's all about the meta of the internecine struggles between newspapers at that time. Not just partisanship, not just Republican versus Democrat, but engaging in squabbles between newspapers and their own teams, their own alignments, and having that Occupy column space, it was far more common than you can imagine if you haven't made a habit of reading these newspapers. Anyway, Friday evening, March 10th, 1871, Mr. Sumner's removal. The Republican senators have decided by a vote of 26 to 21 that Senator Sumner shall be superseded in the chairmanship of the Committee on Foreign Relations by Senator Cameron. This action is preeminently wise, notwithstanding that Mr. Sumner's friends will protest against it. Admitting that Mr. Sumner has performed valuable services for the Republican Party during his lifetime, admitting that up to a certain date he was of great use to the country on the Committee on Foreign Relations, and admitting that to a certain point his abilities should be recognized. 
Yet, it by no means follows that Senator Sumner should have a life lease of the position held by him on the Foreign Relations Committee, if he has assumed such an attitude on foreign questions as to be in opposition to the prevailing sentiment of the Republican Party and of the administration. That he has taken such an attitude cannot be denied. Conclusions in relation to the action of the Senators, which substitutes Mr. Cameron for Mr. Sumner, on the Committee on Foreign Relations should be formed by the exercise of common sense instead of the jaundiced influences of prejudice. At the beginning of President Grant's administration, Mr. Sumner undertook to forestall any policy which the President might have concerning our relations with Great Britain, and to summarize the administration on that subject by declaring policy in a speech the ground of which was not practicable nor in accord with either the dominant public sentiment or the views of the administration. Mr. Sumner's views on the British international question were not the views of the Republican Party, and the Republican press very generally declared that they were not. But, in deference to Mr. Sumner's wishes, the President appointed Mr. Motley as Minister to England with the express understanding that he should represent the administration, not Mr. Sumner. But no sooner had Mr. Motley reached London than it became evident that he was carrying out Mr. Sumner's policy so far as he could without openly disobeying the instructions of the government which he represented. The history of Mr. Motley's diplomacy was laid before our readers a few weeks ago at the time when the Fish-Motley correspondence was published. That correspondence showed that the administration was determined to treat the variances between itself and Mr. Sumner in the most delicate possible manner so as to avoid collision. But Mr. Sumner was disposed not to be in accord with the administration unless his policy were followed, and Mr. Motley were allowed to remain at the British court. He exhibited his hostility to the president in his late speech against the San Domingo Commission, which for virulence and invective has not been equaled for many years. The charges made by him on that occasion placed the president in a humiliating position. Had they received credence from the public, they would have done irreparable injury to the president, for they virtually pronounced him as an official jobber. Taking into consideration the eminent position which Mr. Sumner held, these charges of the distinguished senator from Massachusetts could not but be considered very inimical and injurious both to the president and to the Republican Party. Let us look at the condition of our relations with Great Britain at the present time. A high commission is in session in Washington, considering the subjects that have been brought in question between the United States and Great Britain within a few years. It is of the utmost importance that the work of that commission shall not be impeded by influences which will perhaps prevent its amicable and honorable consummation. Our relations with Great Britain are most sensitive, and the position of Mr. Sumner on the Committee of Foreign Relations, according to his already expressed views, would very likely be used to defeat a treaty which might be adopted by the commission, in case such treaty were not patterned after Mr. Sumner's policy. The defeat of a treaty with Great Britain would be exceedingly disastrous to this country in the long catalog of complications which would directly arise. The Syracuse Standard makes 
an ungracious attack on the administration and the 26 senators who voted for Mr. Sumner's removal, says the Standard, the 26 senators have done a foolish, if not a disastrous, act. We shall not impute dishonorable motives to them, although the expressed anxiety of the president to accomplish Mr. Sumner's removal will give rise to ugly surmises concerning the use and acceptance of the patronage of the government to accomplish the scheme. The president himself, if report be true, has been exceedingly lacking in dignity in thus warring upon the senator. The standards the standard's malignity cannot be concealed under its intended ambiguous expressions. That paper virtually charges those senators who voted against Mr. Sumner with bribery and charges the president with an undue use of the federal patronage. That is what the standard's language means, notwithstanding its attempts to fortify itself against such an imputation by saying, we shall not impute dishonorable motives to them. In what respect, we ask the standard, have the president and the 26 senators been, been guilty of those acts which will give rise to those ugly surmises? And how has the president been exceedingly lacking in dignity in, decla in declaring a chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee who is not a bitter and avowed opponent of the administration's foreign policy? Do not the people look to President Grant for the settlement of our claims with Great Britain? If he fails to arrange a settlement, will they not hold him to a strict accountability? And now that the High Commission is considering the international claims, is it fair and manly to make such attacks upon the President? The Standard asserts that Charles Sumner's friends will not tamely submit to this attack upon him, that they will have a personal grievance to avenge, and in avenging it, the Republican Party must more or less suffer in its organization, and that it is quite questionable, indeed, whether Mr. Sumner and his friends may not quite as plausibly claim to be the Republican Party as those senators who bask in the beams of executive favor. Are we to understand the standard to say that Mr. Sumner's friends will sacrifice principles for the man? Charles Sumner has many admirers, but we do not believe that Republicans will follow him in his obstinate opposition to the administration. The administration has used its best efforts to avoid the necessity for this removal of Senator Sumner. But that gentleman has forced the issue, and upon him rests the responsibility. Eating Saloons Brigham Saloon, Corner Railroad and South Salina Streets, regular dinner from 12 to 3 p.m., 40 cents, regular warm supper from 6 to 8 p.m., 40 cents, meals served to order at all hours, shell oysters constantly on hand. It is an actual fact that his is the place to dine. Frank Horaback. So, again, the reason I read that last article is to show you the level of squabbling between newspapers at the time. And to step back and, and point out that it's not just a matter of 
team sports between newspapers. The media, and again, I'm going to drive home this point again and again, so get used to it. All media was social media. There's nothing new under the sun. The media of 1871 was engaged in a complex tango with politics and with advertisers and with the public in the same way as it is today. It was all about eyeballs on ads, but it was... Sorry. (laughs) I can't very well say it was all about eyeballs on ads and then go on to say it was also about, but... To a greater or lesser extent, all newspapers of the type that I tend to focus on, uh, not, not for instance, the, the Boston Liberator, because that was privately funded, uh, but newspapers like this uh, made their revenue on ads. That's why so much of the column space is devoted to ads. They they survived or they failed based on the revenue from ads, much of which were patent medicines and nonsense like that. Uh, And they, they grew and evolved due to the vicissitudes of the egos of the publishers and the publisher's interaction with the public and politics. I'll get into this more, obviously, uh, in future episodes, but I want to point you to at least one JSTOR article about that, uh, let's call it the co-evolution between the media and politics and how they were in this complex pirouette whereby politics drove the media, media drove politics, and in some cases the media sort of helped push the politics to an extent that uh, they ended up sort of uh, destabilizing their own platform, if that makes sense. Anyway, on to the next article. We're going to do some uh, more local interest by way of national interest. The Forest City of the South, Syracusans Abroad, Sherman's Monuments, the Cotton Trade, Politics, Northern Enterprise, Correspondence of the Syracuse Journal, Savannah, Georgia, March 6, 1871. The weather here has been delightful for a week past, and strawberries appeared in the markets on Saturday. The beautiful parks that abound here give the city a most attractive aspect and contribute not a little to its healthfulness, for the surroundings of Savannah suggest malaria and fevers in abundance. In the original plan of the city provision was made for in the original plan of the city, provision was made for broad streets and goodly-sized parks at the intersections 
of these streets, and the plan has been strictly adhered to in the subsequent extensions of the city. The magnificent old trees of live oak that all these parks and the broad streets... The magnificent old trees of live oak that fill these parks and the broad streets have very properly given to the city the title of Forest City. Syracusans arrived last Thursday. Mr. Giles Everson and family came on from Jacksonville and spent a day or two going on to Charleston on Saturday. Albert Everson, who has been very sick during the winter, has improved very much in health and seems to endure well the fatigues of travel. On Saturday, Mr. N. F. Graves and Indy and Miss Farmer arrived from Florida. They have had a delightful trip up the St. John's River and to other points of interest in Florida and are in good health and exuberant spirits. They leave today for New Orleans by way of Macon and Mobile. From both these parties, we hear that Mr. J.G. Wincoop and family are still in Jacksonville, deriving much benefit from the genial climate of Florida. Sherman's Movements In approaching Savannah from the north and northwest, the traveler passes, at intervals, extensive earthworks thrown up by Sherman's army in their progress from Savannah to Richmond. The people call them Sherman's Monuments. Around Savannah, in the immediate vicinity, many of these earthworks are leveled, but some still remain, especially on what is called the Thunderbolt Road, leading to Bonaventure. The exchange, or public city hall, on Bay Street is the building from which General Geary addressed the people when he took possession of the city. The historians of Savannah have preserved in their records a full account of this great event in her history, and have been quite truthful in their account of transactions that were very humbling to Southern pride. They charge our soldiers, however, with some excesses, and particularly with breaking open vaults in the cemeteries in search of hidden valuables. In visiting Laurel Grove, we asked the keeper if these reports were true. He said the vaults were broken open, but it was done by stragglers, and in violation of orders issued for the protection of such places. There is a large cotton trade here, and the wharves and warehouses along the river present a daily scene of business activity and life. Groups of men are occupied in receiving shipments of cotton, sampling and weighing it and preparing it for exportation. The bales seem pretty well pressed when they come from the plantation, but before they are put on board ship, especially intended for foreign markets, they are repressed by powerful steam presses, which crush up a bale of four feet thickness into a space of only about 18 inches. The force of these enormous presses is 150 tons. There does not seem to be a large amount of other business here, but the cotton trade alone is sufficient to ensure a good degree of prosperity to the city. Southern Sentiment Commodore Maury of Rebel Notoriety is announced to lecture here this evening under the auspices of the Georgia Historical Society. His theme is The Progress of the Physical Sciences. Such men are held in great honor here, and public sentiment drifts heavily against union men, especially Republicans or administration men. 
There are three daily papers in Savannah struggling for existence, and every one bitterly opposed to the state and national administrations. Governor Bullock receives an editorial excoriation for, from them all each day in the week, and nothing will satisfy them but the full admission to complete power of democratic rebels. If these papers reflect general public sentiment, the outlook for republicanism in this state in the future is not very flattering. A gentleman, a Republican, told me a day or two since that the blacks would soon vote the Democratic ticket by a large majority. Northern Influences A good many Northerners have established themselves here and are exerting a good something influence. Misters Ludden and Bates, one of whom is an old acquaintance and the other a gentleman from Chicago, have established a thorough musical conservatory here, similar to Professor Hinton's in Syracuse, and modeled after the German conservatories. It was regarded as an innovation, but is rapidly gaining public favor. In other departments, in other departments of business, the energy and enterprise of northern men are also sensibly felt. The tide of travel is beginning to set heavily to Florida, and we propose to go with the current and enjoy the genial climate, the luxuries and delicacies, as well as have the discomforts of crowded boats, crowded cars, and crowded hotels in sunny Florida. Soap. Finn. Uses rainwater. Finn uses rainwater in making his extra fancy. Sorry. H. Finn uses rainwater in making his extra family soap. A little of this soap will do a large washing, and it is cheaper than any other soap in the market. For sale by all grocers and at the factory, number 11 Townsend Street. Also on hand, farmers' homemade soap at prices to suit. Call and see. All right, so about that last article. Do you see what I mean about the tragedy of Reconstruction? Go back and listen if you if you didn't get the same sense that I did because I'd like I'd like you to hear it. You hear the word comfort. You hear stories about how northerners are trying to make a go of it and the overall tone of the article is one of desire for things to get back to a smooth flow. I think people wanted to grease the wheels and they were already getting sick of the contention between the Northerners in the South and the Southerners who were bitter at the North. And my overall impression of this is one of, I'm shocked that just six years after the end of the war, there is so little bitterness in the North. Now again, all of this is just reflections 
of reflections, reflections of editorial agendas, reflections of public vicissitudes, public desires. With that said, my impression is one of astonishing smoothing over of bitterness rather than bitterness itself. It seems like they just wanted to get on with it and I can't readily conceive of a nation smoothing things over that quickly. But if the newspapers are any indication, that's exactly what they were doing. Just six years after the war, they were forgetting all of the bitterness and pain and loss that they felt, and they just wanted to get on with it. That gives you some sense of the magnitude of whatever forces ended up scuttling Reconstruction. To farmers, $10 will buy a steel plow with coulter wheel and clevis complete. C.C. Bradley and Son. One more article that I wanted to share. Nope, I lie. I think that was it. See, I told you this would have to suck. I did anarchy in Kentucky, Mr. Sumner's removal, the Forest City in the... Yeah, okay. What I did wanted to share... Excuse me. What I wanted to share before closing, because I forgot to share it at the time, was there was an extra reason why I wanted to talk about the Sumner article. And I'm going to include in the show notes a link to a JSTOR article about the conflict between Sumner and Frederick Douglass, because this is fascinating. Uh, Frederick Douglass went against a lot of folks' expectations at the time, and he went with the prevailing notions of the Republican Party rather than with Sumner when Sumner went against the annexation of Santo Domingo. Now, this is particularly fascinating to me in light of what I talked about, that, that internecine conflict between newspapers. Here you have a, an article in the Syracuse Journal fighting with the Syracuse Daily Standard. Now, for some background, the journal was... I hesitate because using words like conservative and liberal will get you in trouble when interpreting events of 150 years ago. Just, just, just bear with me. I'm painting with a very, very broad brush. The journal was left of center, but it was nowhere near as far left as the standard. So I find it interesting that there's this squabble between the journal and the standard, and the standard is obviously digging in its heels real hard and just being all about 
Team Sumner at a time when Sumner was actually disagreeing with Frederick Douglass. That's interesting to me because the Standard had a long storied history with Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass was one of the most potent forces for abolition, the Underground Railroad, everything surrounding those uh, in the Syracuse area. And Syracuse was an enormous hub of abolitionist activity at the time. It was vitally important to the flow of runaway slaves to Canada, uh, and it was a vitally important source of media output. The I, I can't overstate just how far left the standard was under the guidance of Moses Summers. I mean, hell, Moses was one of the primary driving forces behind the Jerry Rescue of 1851. Not only was he right there physically in the thick of things, without his guidance between 1848 and 1851, the Standard would never have been such a potent organizing force for the abolition community within Syracuse, and the Jerry Rescue absolutely would never have happened. I'm convinced of that, given all of my research. Anyway, I think that's everything I wanted to share. If you've stuck with me through this ramble, then, first of all, thank you. Second of all, hey, it can only get better from here. Thanks for listening. And until next time, seek context. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you've been listening to the Historic Headlines Podcast. Thanks, as always, to Tom Trinisky for all his fabulous work on FultonHistory.com. Without his free repository of old newspapers, this podcast wouldn't exist. Oh, he'd fly through the air with the greatest of ease. A daring young man on the dying trapeze. His movements were graceful, the girls he could please, and my love he stole away.